The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Today, we're pleased to bring you the first installment of our Classic Texts in Times of Crisis series. Today's reading comes from Thomas Merton, a writer that many of you already know and love. Merton was a Trappist monk, and Trappists are a strict order that values solitude and silence as a means to deeper communion. For a big dose of this, check out the movie Into Great Silence. And I'm warning you, you bring popcorn or any other loud snack to this movie at your own peril. But solitary and silent as he was after his vows, Merton's words of wisdom were many, as he wrote on prayer and Christian spirituality in modernity. Man seeks unity, he said, because he is the image of the one God. How does solitude, even enforced solitude, present opportunities to explore greater depths with God? Father Max Stewart will be reading for us today. Mac is a priest in the Diocese of North Carolina and has made some attempts at living in intentional Christian community, which I'm sure has also meant some attempts at solitude. Mac reads an excerpt here from one of Merton's well-known works on the spiritual importance and dangers of solitude, and offers a helpful reflection for today on how and why this time of imposed solitude for so many might turn out to be providential. In this time of social distancing, quarantines, and self-isolation, and in this time when sacramental Christians in particular are being summoned to ponder and embrace practices of spiritual communion, one particular aspect of this mystery that is a fitting matter for reflection is the deep relationship between solitude and communion. One classical Christian author that treats this relationship particularly well is the 20th century Trappist monk Thomas Merton. As so many people during this pandemic in our country and in the world right now either find themselves having very limited interaction with other people or having, on the other hand, almost constant interaction with those household members among whom they find themselves in quarantine, a chapter from Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation stuck out to me as especially relevant and fruitful. The chapter is called Solitude is Not Separation, and Merton is reflecting here from his very deep experience of living in community with monks in a monastery, a place where people have sought out a voluntary solitude, a different situation from the one in which we find ourselves, but still very fruitful for reflection. Merton begins, Some men have perhaps become hermits with the thought that sanctity could only be attained by escape from other men. But the only justification for a life of deliberate solitude is the conviction that it will help you to love not only God, but also other men. If you go into the desert merely to get away from people you dislike, you will find neither peace nor solitude. You will only isolate yourself with a tribe of devils. Man seeks unity because he is the image of the one God, 
Unity implies solitude, and hence the need to be physically alone. But unity and solitude are not metaphysical isolation. He who isolates himself in order to enjoy a kind of independence in his egotistic and external self does not find unity at all, for he disintegrates into a multiplicity of conflicting passions and finally ends in confusion and total unreality. Solitude is not and can never be a narcissistic dialogue of the ego with itself. Such self-contemplation is a futile attempt to establish the finite self as infinite, to make it permanently independent of all other beings. And this is madness. Note, however, that it is not a madness peculiar to solitaries. It is much more common to those who try to assert their own unique excellence by dominating others. This is the more usual sin. The need for true solitude is a complex and dangerous thing, but it is a real need. It is all the more real today when the collectivity tends more and more to swallow up the person in its shapeless and faceless mass. The temptation of our day is to equate love and conformity, passive subservience to the mass mind or to the organization. This temptation is only strengthened by futile rebellion on the part of eccentrics who want to be madly and notably different, and who thereby create for themselves only a new kind of dullness, a dullness that is erratic instead of predictable. True solitude is the home of the person. False solitude, the refuge of the individualist. The person is constituted by a uniquely subsisting capacity to love, by a radical ability to care for all beings made by God and loved by Him. Such a capacity is destroyed by the loss of perspective. Without a certain element of solitude, there can be no compassion, because when a man is lost in the wheels of a social machine, he is no longer aware of human needs as a matter of personal responsibility. One can escape from men by plunging into the midst of a crowd. Go into the desert, not to escape other men, but in order to find them in God. Physical solitude has its dangers, but we must not exaggerate them. The great temptation of modern man is not physical solitude, but immersion in the mass of other men, not escape to the mountains or the desert, would that more men were so tempted, but escape into the great formless sea of irresponsibility which is the crowd. There is actually no more dangerous solitude than that of the man who is lost in a crowd, who does not know he is alone, and who does not function as a person in a community either. He does not face the risks of true solitude or its responsibilities, and at the same time the multitude has taken all other responsibilities off his shoulders, yet he is by no means free of care. He is burdened by the diffuse, anonymous anxiety, the nameless fears, the petty itching lusts, and the all-pervading hostilities which fill mass society the way water fills the ocean. Mere living in the midst of other men does not guarantee that we live in communion with them, or even in communication with them. Who has less to communicate than the mass man? Very often, it is the solitary who has the most to say. Not that he uses many words, but what he says is new, substantial, unique. It is his own. Even though he says very little, he has something to communicate, something personal which he is able to share with others. He has something real to give. 
because he himself is real. Where men live huddled together without true communication, there seems to be greater sharing and a more genuine communion. But this is not communion, only immersion in the general meaninglessness of countless slogans and cliches repeated over and over again, so that in the end one listens without hearing and responds without thinking. The constant din of empty words and machine noises, the endless booming of loudspeakers, end by making true communication and true communion almost impossible. Each individual in the mass is insulated by thick layers of insensibility. He doesn't care. He doesn't hear. He doesn't think. He does not act. He is pushed. He does not talk. He produces conventional sounds when stimulated by the appropriate noises. He does not think. He secretes cliches. Mere living alone does not isolate a man. Mere living together does not bring men into communion. The common life can either make one more of a person or less of a person, depending whether it is truly common life or merely life in a crowd. To live in communion, in genuine dialogue with others, is absolutely necessary if man is to remain human. But to live in the midst of others, sharing nothing with them but the common noise and the general distraction, isolates a man in the worst way, separates him from reality in a way that is almost painless. It divides him off and separates him from other men and from his true self. Here, the sin is not in the conviction that one is not like other men, but in the belief that being like them is sufficient to cover every other sin. The complacency of the individual who admires his own excellence is bad enough, but it is more respectable than the complacency of the man who has no self-esteem because he has not even a superficial self which he can esteem. He is not a person, not an individual, only an atom. This atomized existence is sometimes praised as humility or as self-sacrifice. Sometimes it is called obedience. Sometimes it is devotion to the dialectic of class war. It produces a kind of peace which is not peace, but only the escape from an immediately urgent sense of conflict. It is the peace not of love, but of anesthesia. It is the peace not of self-realization and self-dedication, but of flight into irresponsibility. There is no true solitude except interior solitude. And interior solitude is not possible for anyone who does not accept his right place in relation to other people. There is no true peace possible for the man who still imagines that some accident of talent or grace or virtue segregates him from other men and places him above them. Solitude is not separation. God does not give us graces or talents or virtues for ourselves alone. We are members one of another, and everything that is given to one member is given for the whole body. I do not wash my feet to make them more beautiful than my face. The saints love their sanctity not because it separates them from the rest of us and places them above us, but because, on the contrary, it brings them closer to us and, in a sense, places them below us. Their sanctity is given them in order that they may help us and serve us. For the saints are like doctors and nurses, who are better than the sick, in the sense that they are healthy and possess arts of healing them, and yet they make themselves the servants of the sick and devote their own health and their art to them.
The saints are what they are, not because their sanctity makes them admirable to others, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everybody else. It gives them a clarity of compassion that can find good in the most terrible criminals. It delivers them from the burden of judging others, condemning other men. It teaches them to bring the good out of others by compassion, mercy, and pardon. A man becomes a saint, not by conviction that he is better than sinners, but by the realization that he is one of them and that all together need the mercy of God. Be content that you are not yet a saint, even though you realize that the only thing worth living for is sanctity. Then you will be satisfied to let God lead you to sanctity by paths that you cannot understand. You will travel in darkness in which you will no longer be concerned with yourself and no longer compare yourself with other men. Those who have gone by that way have finally found out that sanctity is in everything and that God is all around them. Having given up all desire to compete with other men, they suddenly wake up and find that the joy of God is everywhere, and they are able to exult in the virtues and goodness of others more than ever they could have done in their own. They are so dazzled by the reflection of God in the souls of the men they live with that they no longer have any power to condemn anything they see in another. Even in the greatest sinners, they can see virtues and goodness that no one else can find. As for themselves, if they still consider themselves, they no longer dare to compare themselves with others. The idea has now become unthinkable, but it is no longer a source of suffering and lamentation. They have finally reached the point where they take their own insignificance for granted. They are no longer interested in their external selves. To say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. For God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. If, therefore, I do anything or think anything or say anything or know anything that is not purely for the love of God, it cannot give me peace or rest or fulfillment or joy. To find love, I must enter into the sanctuary where it is hidden, which is the mystery of God. And to enter into his sanctity, I must become holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect. There is so much to reflect on here in Merton's thoughts in these pages, but I just want to point out two things that I think are worthy of reflection, especially in this time. The first has to do with solitude, and the second has to do with communion. Burton speaks of human beings seeking a unity, a unity in themselves, a freedom from dispersion and distraction. And that, he says, is why some people voluntarily and deliberately seek out solitude, like the monks among whom he himself lived. Now, Merton is writing in this sort of context where his, his brethren have sought out this life of solitude. And he's warning them largely in this chapter against the potential dangers in that life. People who seek solitude merely to find independence, he says, merely to be free of the challenge and difficulty and strangeness of other people 
will inevitably find themselves in a self-enclosed prison, locked from the inside. Now, people who, on the contrary, find themselves in isolation not by their own will, but by the imposition of external circumstances, as for so many in our current situation, these people may nevertheless be subject to the same sorts of temptations that Merton identifies here. Merton says that for the voluntary solitary, there is the danger of disintegrating into a multiplicity of conflicting passions and finally ending in confusion and total unreality. The idea here, I think, seems to be that simply being withdrawn from the world, simply being alone even, doesn't necessarily mean that we can avoid distractions. St. Basil the Great, when he went off into the forests of Cappadocia uh, on his own in, in solitude, wrote to his friend Gregory of Nazianzus and said, I have left the world, but I cannot get away from myself. We can't avoid the distractions that our own soul imposes on us. And there's a temptation, even when we are in isolation, to find ways of evading the reality of the God who wants our undivided attention. Being confined at home for an extended period of time is a wonderful opportunity perhaps even a providentially appointed opportunity for us to dig more deeply into the roots of reality, the reality of the world, the reality of ourselves, and above all, the reality of God. And we do that best by things like reading, like reflecting, journaling, singing, praying. A constant refrain in modern life is about not being able to find the time for such and such. In this season, though, Time has found us. Don't squander it by watching too much Netflix, by playing too many board games. Those can be great things to do. Read that book that your pious aunt gave you for Christmas years ago and has since been sitting on the shelf. Memorize a few psalms. Pray the daily office. Lots of Episcopal parishes around the country are live streaming their offices to show you how to do it. Receive the gift of time and space for solitude to discover the truth of an old saying that you are never less alone than when you are alone. The second point then is about communion. Merton says, solitude is not separation. That's the title of the chapter. Perhaps one of the main reasons God gives us times of solitude is to help us realize just how deeply connected we are with everyone else. That may actually be more obvious for you right now than it normally is, uh, if perhaps your time of quarantine or isolation is shared with members of your household, and you're discovering very quickly just how much your lives and identities are bound up with one another, perhaps, perhaps a bit too much in this circumstance. But Mer Merton reminds us that true interior solitude, the kind where we see, see ourselves in the eternal delight and infinite embrace of God, is actually impossible, for he says, Anyone who does not accept his right place in relation to other people, there is no true peace possible for the man who still imagines that some accident of talent or grace or virtue segregates him from other men and places him above them. Solitude is not separation. In other words, what we come to realize in a true experience of solitude is that we are all members of one another caught up in a web of interdependence, both material and spiritual, both visible and invisible, with other people both near and far. Our gifts are given to us 
to help relieve their burdens, and their gifts are given to them to help relieve our burdens. Again, this is true at both the material and the spiritual level. This is why we intercede in prayer for others, especially those in dire straits at a time like this. The sick, the jobless, the lonely, nurses, doctors, government officials who are actively battling this virus, and so forth. When we pray for them, we're helping to carry their spiritual burdens. We're holding them up in that mysterious, organic, invisible economy of the mystical body of Christ. When we pray the Psalms, for instance, in the daily office, we might come across lines or passages that don't seem to apply to me, like calling upon God for deliverance from some extreme anguish, if I myself am not experiencing some extreme anguish. But we know that these passages do apply to someone, somewhere in the great mystical body. And when we take such a prayer on our lips, we are offering it on their behalf, offering it in union with the one head of the body whose suffering and sacrifice brought about our redemption. It's in this dynamic interrelation of solitude and communion that we find our true selves, as Merton calls it. We are not atomized individuals. We are persons, each an infinite mystery woven together with all others, bearing together the burdens and sharing the joys that flow down from Christ our God and Lord. His grace is like fine oil upon the head that runs down upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron, down to the skirts of his clothes, down to the least and last of Christ's members. So take these words about solitude and communion to heart from Thomas Merton today and pray with the whole body of Christ that Christ would come and be in our midst and refresh us with his grace and give us courage to bear the trials that the world currently faces. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning covenant blog, livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.